So I hope you will turn in your scriptures to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses in John chapter 5. On November 19th, 1863, Abraham Lincoln gave one of the most important speeches, one of the most profound speeches in American history. It's called the Gettysburg Address. I had to memorize it, I think, in sixth grade. I will not recite it to you today. (laughs) It took only two minutes, and it's about 272 words. The reason I say about is because there are like five or six different versions that Lincoln actually wrote down. And um, we didn't get recorded the actual words. Um, This, the Gettysburg Address took place four and a half months after the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. 51,000 soldiers were killed from the North and the South together. Some have named Lincoln's Gettysburg Address the greatest speech, the greatest American speech of all time. The majority of newspapers praised it, but not all. The Harrisburg Patriot uh, derided Lincoln's speech as just silly remarks. The New York World accused Lincoln of gross ignorance or willful misstatement when he said four score and seven years. The Chicago Times observed The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterance who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States. The Times of London commented the ceremony at Gettysburg was rendered ludicrous by some of the sallies of that poor President Lincoln. Everyone has their critics. Even you have probably had your critics along the way. Great people have had critics, and even Jesus had his critics too. And that's what we see in John chapter 5. It all happens because of a miracle. It won't be the first time that it happens. But it clearly gets started in the Gospel of John. I'm going to read the John chapter 5 and, and verses 1 through 9 as, uh, as we start the passage today. Uh, John chapter 5, and then we begin at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there uh, had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred and while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. 
At once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so um, we see God's work displayed in the life of a physically disabled person. And uh, we're going to walk through this. In this we, f- we find the setting in verses 1 and 2. And uh, so, you know, it's been a couple of weeks. Whenever you come to a passage like this, you have to think about the context. Um, sometime later, so you got when? Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, we can ask a lot of questions here. Um, where had Jesus been before he went up to Jerusalem to the Jewish festival? Thank you for asking, and I will remind us with the map. So, um, just think in terms of, we'll start down in Jerusalem. Let me, let me just remind you this. In John chapter 2, Jesus had been in Cana of Galilee, where he turned water into wine. That was his first miracle recorded in the Gospel of John. Then he hung out there in Cana with the townspeople, and many had come to believe. And then um, in John chapter 3, he went to, um, at the end of John chapter 2, he went back to Jerusalem, and um, he went into the temple. Remember, there were people uh, selling animals, merchants, making money in the temple, and Jesus cleared the temple, and he got into trouble for that. And then he met Nick at night, Nicodemus, and uh, shared with him how to be born again. In John chapter 4, Jesus had headed north, and he was going to Galilee, but on the way he went through Samaria. And he met the woman at the well in Samaria. And he shared with her how she could have eternal water and a new life. She got so excited, she went back to town, and all the townspeople came out to see him, and Jesus hung out now in Sychar for several days. That's John chapter 4, and that brings us here. So if we look at the map, uh, think in terms of uh, this was a map we had last time, and then we just added a little bit. Uh, He went from Jerusalem up to Sychar, in the middle, and then he went up to Cana, and then he's in that all that Galilee area, and he probably went more than just Cana. And then eventually he's going to come back. We don't know exactly the roads he took, but this is kind of the rough idea. And he's going to come back to Jerusalem. But remember, it says he goes up to Jerusalem. Most of you know, but I'll remind us. Why, is, why did they go up? He went up because uh, Jerusalem is at a higher elevation than everywhere else, almost in, in the whole nation. Definitely higher than Galilee, which is a low area, but it's also a high point because that's where the temple is. It is the most important city in the nation. And so Jesus goes up. Verse 2, now they're in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So it's near the sheep gate. What's a sheep gate? Well, it's a gate for sheep. 
It's where the sheep come into the city because around Jerusalem is a wall around the whole city to protect it. And there are several gates where people can get in. The sheep gate is where they let the sheep in to be sacrificed at the temple. Near that area is this pool. Um, it's called Bethesda, which is house of mercy. And uh, we just... we. It's, a, it's an identifiable place in the first century. It has five covered colonnades. Now remember, in 70 AD, this temple will be destroyed. This city will be destroyed by the Romans. John is writing much later. And so there is no more sheep gate. And there is no more temple when John is writing. But he's telling the story as as uh, he recalls it. We see this situation in verses 3 through 5. Here is a great number there, excuse me, here a great number of dis disabled people used to lie. They're not there now. But they were then. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. This would be a, a very sad sight very sad predicament for a lot of people. Um, it's packed, this area around the pool is packed with uh, physically challenged people. They were lonely. They were socially isolated. They were probably rejected even by their families. They were viewed as social outcasts. Uh, oftentimes people considered that with these physical limitations, there must be something wrong here. It's probably something you or your parents, and that's why you deserve this. And so um, that's not a very healthy way to look at, at life. But there were some in, in this time who, who viewed it this way. These are hurting people, and they have learned to survive. And um, Jesus is coming here. Imagine the sights at the pool and the sounds at the pool and the smells that might be at the pool because these people haven't been cared for. And some of them can't even care for themselves. You know, I doubt if the restroom facilities were great nor were people helping them much. Um, and so Jesus finds an invalid who had, been the, who had been an invalid for 38 years. So interesting thing here, Jesus selects a particular person, and he's going to heal him, but he's not going to heal everyone. Um. Often people sought Jesus for healing or somebody in the family or a friend went to Jesus. Je There's nobody going to Jesus for this man. Jesus searches out this man until he finds him. And uh, we don't know uh, what this person's disability is. We don't know how old this person is. He's at least 38, but he, he could be a lot older. 
We don't know if it was an accident or if there was just a congenital issue. Um, we don't know how this man gets to the pool. Does someone bring him each day? We don't know. We don't know who helps him with simple needs like bathing and finding food. Um, how many people here have watched The Chosen? Quite a few. I think a few more of you should. Um, our family just started through this uh, for a second time at, at Christmas with, with family members, and it, it's, uh, I think it's really well done. Um, whenever they, they tell a story, when all the facts there are, are in Scripture, they, they have to um, sort of design a, a situation, and I, I think it's uh, pretty accurate stuff, and so I, I would highly recommend it. But this story is uh, very clear in, in The Chosen and um, would encourage your family to consider watching The Chosen. It's on the Angel Studio app, and it's on several different apps as well. But if you want to get season three, you have to get the app. Uh, we see the encounter in uh, verses six and seven. Uh, by the way, why do people go to the pool of Bethesda? Why are all the disabled people there? And the, the answer is... Um, there was a tradition in the first century that if people would go there, at certain times, an angel would stir the water up in the pool, and the first person in the pool who gets to this place is healed. And so there's this competition, all these people around the pool hoping they could be the one. Now, I don't think this is probably a God thing. Yeah, I think an angel could do that. But there had been a lot of other influences by the first century in the city of Jerusalem. And um, this is not the way God usually does things. He doesn't create competition for people um, to be healed. And uh, there is no evidence or any command that this was ever to be. And there's no evidence, actually, that anybody was actually ever healed at the pool of Bethesda when the water was stirred up. It is believed that the pool of Bethesda had water that bubbled from time to time because of a spring that came into the pool. So the encounter, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked, do you want to get well? What kind of question is that? Of course he wants to get well, right? Anybody knows that. That's why he's there. Remember back in John chapter 2, verse 25, and... and uh, John records that Jesus knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in this man's heart. Jesus knew this man's perspective. Jesus knew what this man was thinking. And um, he knows this man is losing hope. And um, verse 7 Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When, I, when I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. 
Did he answer the question? He didn't answer. He really is kind of making an excuse. I mean, somebody is kind of accusing him. It's, it's like Jesus is accusing him of not wanting to be healed. And um, it's not his fault. Um, he, he cannot be healed because there's nobody there to help him. Because the other people get in first. It's not his fault. But what was the question? Do you want to get healed? Jesus is stirring up the man's heart. There's not an angel, angel stirring up the pool. Jesus is stirring up the man's heart, reminding him of his need. And he doesn't know who Jesus is. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Holy One, the Promised One, is standing before him right now. And then the miracle happens in verses 8 and 9. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. How can he do this? How can the man get up and walk when he's an invalid? Who's going to help him? He has to want to be healed. And he has to take some action to follow through. Very simply, he, he just needs to do what Jesus said for him to do. To pick up his mat and walk. Pretty, pretty simple. One of the most practical questions um, for us today. Just to do what Jesus says. Are you and I willing to do what Jesus says? It's pretty simple. In verses 8 and 9, pick up your mat and walk. And then in verse 9, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And just like that, at the spoken word of Jesus... Pick up your mat and walk. The man was cured. All Jesus had to do was to say the word. That's how he created the universe, by the way. He just spoke into existence. The man just got up and he walked and there was no physical therapy required. He was restored. He was recreated, so to speak, by the creator. But he had to do what Jesus said before he was healed. He had to take God at his word. This is living by faith. That's what living, it's just really simple. Living by faith, taking God at his word, is doing what he says. And God enabled this man to carry out the command. And God always enables his people to do what he says for them to do. The pattern is God speaks through his word, and we respond by faith. 
taking action by doing what he says. And God gives the results. God always enables us to do what he says. He always enables us to do what he commands. The Apostle Paul understood this very clearly in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, he didn't mean that he could just, you know, lift a million pounds. He meant, I can do all things that God wants me to do. I can do all things that God asks me to do by his strength. He gives the strength to do what he asks. Now, the story is going to take a turn in, um, after verse 9. Um, and God's work is investigated by religious leaders. The miracle was great. The miracle was awesome. A man's life was changed. His body was restored. But there's a problem. And we see the problem in verses, uh, the second part of verse 9 and then verse 10. The day on which uh, this took place was the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? Well, it's the seventh day of the week. We know in Genesis 1 and 2 that God rested on the seventh day. It wasn't because he was tired, but he was setting a principle, um, not just a principle, but a rhythm into creation to rest one day a week, to slow down and replenish physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually and set aside a day for God. And uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 20, it, it, verse 8, the scripture says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, a, a day dedicated to God. And uh, the explanation goes on to say not to work on that day. And so um, there's a problem with this man being healed on Sabbath. There's a problem with this man carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Verse 10, And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forget, uh, forbids you to carry your mat. Well, not exactly. Yes, there, there was to be no work on the Sabbath, and, and they celebrated a special meal on, uh, on the evening of the Sabbath, and uh, they had planned ahead, and they would stop Work and they they didn't they didn't trade or they didn't buy or sell on the Sabbath. Um, and you know God designed that there would be no work, and for God's people they had to trust God that God could hold the world together while while they took this break. Um, it required f uh, faith to trust God to to. Uh, follow the Sabbath. But the real problem was not the law of the Sabbath in the Bible. It was the rules of the religious leaders um, that really went back to like the third or fourth century before Jesus. Uh, the oral tradition uh, called the Mishnah and uh, these well-intended religious leaders down through the ages passed down extra rules to sort of interpret and apply to God's 613 commands. 
And so you're going to end up with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extra commands that aren't in the Bible. Um, there were, for example, there were 39 categories for violating the Sabbath. And in each of the 39 categories were subcategories. For example, it's okay on the Sabbath to carry a person that's lying on a mat. So you can carry the mat with a person. It is not okay to carry a mat without a person. And that's the problem here. This man carried an empty mat on the Sabbath. There, you know, and I've shared a couple of these before, that there was to be no spitting on the Sabbath because you might accidentally water the ground, you know, like water the grass or water a crop. And there was no uh, walking on the grass on the Sabbath because you may pick up grass seed on your sandal. You may carry it and it get planted somewhere else and that would violate the Sabbath. Uh, interesting one is you weren't to, if you had a toothache, you were not to put vinegar on your tooth on the Sabbath. But you could put vinegar on your food on the Sabbath and if that helped your tooth toothache, that was okay. These were extra rules added to God's law. And the problem is the man is carrying his own mat on the Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees, the law forbids you to carry your mat. And so there is an investigation now that the Pharisees know these things in verses 11 through 15. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Now, the man who was healed doesn't want to be blamed for violating the law. He wants the Pharisees to know, the religious leaders to know it's not his fault because he just did what he was told. It's really the fault of the person who, who told him to do this. So they ask him, verse 12, who, who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, uh, pick it up and walk? Now, you know, What's missing here? They don't, they don't rejoice because this man has been fully restored. It's about the criticism. Um, they focus on what they view as a violation of the Sabbath. They miss the good. Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. You know, Jesus didn't stay around to be the center of attention. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is, it doesn't look like the man spends much energy trying to find out who it was that helped him. Verse 14, later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So he, uh, the man went to the temple. We don't know why. It may have been because he wanted to um, praise God and he wanted to bring a, an offering of, of thanksgiving to, to the temple. Um, maybe he wanted to go to the, to the priest to have them evaluate him medically because that's what you were to do if there had been a change in a person's health like this. And um, we don't know why he went to the temple, but we do know that Jesus went to to see him. Jesus searched him out. And um, 
He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, we don't know why this man was um, disabled for 38 years. It could have been. Uh, it's possible that it was something that he did, a sin issue uh, that brought this about. We have no clue how it happened. But we do know what Jesus is saying is, from now on, turn your life around and seek to be obedient to God. From now on, repent from where you've been to something new. And Jesus is saying, or something worse may befall you. Well, this man has been, maybe he's a paraplegic. Um, we don't know exactly, but we know that this man is significantly physically disabled. And um, I imagine his life was horrible from some of the things he had to experience through culture and just physic physical limitations. What's, what would be worse than that? Jesus is warning him what would be worse would be being condemned to hell for an eternity. Something worse could happen. You have had an encounter with Jesus. What will you do about it? It's the same thing that Jesus told the woman in John chapter 8, to go and sin no more. Um, Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. And so now the man is healed. He goes back and he tells the leaders, Jesus is the one. We don't know his motive, whether uh, he was just naive um, or he was there to please the religious leaders. In verses 16 through 18, we see now another change from this investigation, now there's going to be opposition. God's work is opposed by religious authorities. Um, the opposition begins in verse uh, 16. So uh, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. So the leaders now feel respected. Jesus doesn't really care about their authority in their community. Um, Jesus has violated their rules publicly on the Sabbath and with no regards for them. And so they begin to persecute him. Uh, they see him as their enemy, and he must be removed. And it's going to be complicated, but it's, and it's going to take time. Uh, interesting thing about violating the Sabbath uh, this happens, in, and a lot of you will know this passage in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, when Jesus is accused of violating the Sabbath when, uh, when he's with his disciples and they eat in the grain field. Uh, in, in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, then he said to them, to the leaders, the Sabbath was made for man. Now, the interesting thing is, for the Pharisees, man was made for the Sabbath. But Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's a powerful proclamation. And he's going to say this 
just a little bit after this encounter with the leaders. Mark 2 comes after John 5. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. A short time later, um, and then we come to verse 17. The good news is, even with the criticism, verse 17, the work continues. Um, why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? In verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work, even to this very day. And so God created the heavens and the earth on six days, and he rested. But you know what? He didn't totally stop working. He was holding the universe together with his powerful word. He was still answering prayers. He was still healing people. He was still providing for people. He was still healing people. And then he says, and I too am working. Jesus is like his father. Jesus works even on the Sabbath doing the kinds of things that his father does, saving people, healing people, doing the same work. But the opposition intensifies in verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. This is getting serious. It's more than just disliking Jesus. Uh, it's hatred. They want him violently destroyed. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with the father. Why was Jesus opposed? Jesus worked on the Sabbath. That's why he was opposed. He did something that the creator would do. He's creative. He restores a man's health fully. Um, he did not violate God's law, but he, did, he violated men's laws. And Jesus made himself equal with God. This was blasphemy in, all, in the eyes of all the religious leaders. It was a crime that was punishable by being stoned to death. Um, the religious leaders have their hands tied for right now because guess what? The Romans rule the nation of Israel. The Jewish people cannot rule their own nation. And even though Jesus, in their mind, has violated a law punishable by death, they have to have approval of the Romans. And they know that the Romans aren't going to think this is worthy of a capital punishment. Only the Romans can execute uh, people in the nation of Israel in the first century. Jesus has made himself equal with God because he called God his father. This is a very strong one more. John is really clear about who Jesus is. Uh, the Jewish leaders understood the implications of what Jesus was saying way better than people do today in the American church. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be God himself, equal with his father. 
Um, yet today we have people who don't understand this. Even people who grew up in the church. Jesus is much more than a miracle worker, much more uh, than a great moral teacher. Um, he's much more than a great prophet. He is God. Now, I grew up in a church, and um, I, I said the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, and um, I recited the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, except during communion, we recited the Nicene Creed, and both of those are very clear about who Jesus is. I grew up with this, and yet I would argue that Jesus is not God, Jesus is the Son of God as if that's somehow less than God. I didn't really get it. I said I believed in the Trinity, as many people do, but they don't really understand who Jesus is. Now, when you consider the death of Christ and the value of his life, it makes a huge difference. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, um, the Scripture says, um, but God demonstrates his own love in this while we were yet sinners Christ died for us it was because of God's love Jesus died on the cross for us we deserve the death he paid for our penalty now a lot of people have heard that before his life was given in exchange for our lives. Now, how many people do you think have been born since the beginning of creation? Billions and billions of people. We know that there are over 8 billion people on earth today. I looked this morning and we're about 8 billion. I think we're at all, uh, 2 million, if somebody checks that out. I think we're at... 8 billion, 2 million, and climbing. Um, how big would the sin penalty be for all these people? It would be huge. It would be astronomical. And it would be continuing to grow every minute, just like the population is growing every second. The sin penalty is just humongous. If we had to put a value on it, we can't. But God can. And he has paid for the sin penalty with an infinitely valuable price when he gave his son, who is God, whose life is infinitely valuable. He paid it all. And his perfect sinless life, infinitely valuable, paid it all for all time, and there is nothing more that can be done. It has been done. It is totally accomplished. We can add nothing to it. It's offered to everyone, and each person has the opportunity to respond to God by faith. Jesus didn't come to heal Everyone, we see that in John chapter 5. He came and just healed one at the pool of Bethesda. Um, 
He didn't heal this man because the man was searching for Jesus. Jesus, in fact, searched for him. Jesus asked him if he wanted to be healed. Jesus told him to do something. Pick up your mat and walk. It required this man to respond with action. Question for us is, is what action does Jesus want you to take today? I'm sure you can think of some things that you have been instructed by God in, from his word that he wants you to do. Maybe there's some things you haven't done yet. Maybe there's some actions that he wants you to take. He has spoken to you. He wants you to do it. And he's waiting on you right now to take that step, to follow through, to get up and do what he's asked you to do. The great thing is, he will enable you. He always enables us for what he asks us to do. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you uh, for your word and just the reminder of um, how you work. May we continue to learn um, about you, about who you are, about how you work about what you are like. Thank you that you love us and that you um, empower us to live for you. Give us the courage, God, when we need to take action. And I would pray, God, that you will show us any steps that you would have us to take, steps of obedience, things that you want us to do, but... Maybe we've been putting it off because we think there will be a more convenient time or is maybe it's because we don't want to. God, humble us. Search our hearts. Give us hope for the future and enable us just to walk with you one day at a time. For Jesus' sake, amen.